Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 143 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you. Thank you so much for listening and participating and sending in all your questions and suggestions. Now, speaking of which, if you have any questions or suggestions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delvingintoislam at gmail.com, and I will get back to you as soon as possible, inshallah. Also, if you want to keep up with the release dates or any announcements of any sort, you can follow me on Instagram at delvingintoislampodcast. Again, delvingintoislampodcast for all the upcoming announcements. Now, this podcast is for anyone, literally anyone. Whether you are remotely curious about the religion of Islam, or if you're thinking, you know, about being a Muslim, or if you just became a Muslim, or if you've been a Muslim all of your life and just want to learn more about Islam, this podcast, inshallah, is for you. And with that being said, let's get right into today's topic. Today's topic, it comes to us from uh, Alisa. Alisa is a, a convert. Congratulations and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accept from you all the good deeds and keep you, you know, steadfast and increase your faith and knowledge. Welcome to Islam, Sister Elisa. Now, Elisa has a problem. Elisa, when she became a Muslim, she told herself, okay, Islam, we're one, you know, one nation, that's it, we're good. And then she's, you know, she, she found out that people are asking her now, uh, what are you? Are you Sunnah or are you Shia? And she's like, wait, I'm a Muslim. What are you, what are you talking, what? And she got confused. Like, okay, I thought Islam is one. Like, it's just, I say I'm a Muslim. Why do I have to, you know, choose a sect or a category or a division in Islam, right? And, you know, she also uh, saw that there was a Shi'i mosque. So she went and she prayed there. And she doesn't know, like, is that valid? What's going on here? And also, uh, she kind of identified as she's a Sunni after probably she read and got uh, a little bit of knowledge Now she identifies She's like okay I follow the sunnah of the Prophet That means I am from the sunnah So uh, Sister Elisa wanted me to simply explain The difference between the sunnah and the shia Sister Elisa thank you so much for your question And for your email And yeah so that's that's today's topic inshallah I will inshallah explain uh, in a very, uh, I'll do my best to make it very simple, inshallah, uh, to explain the main differences between the Sunnah and the Shia. But before I, may, I say that, there are a few things that I need to, you know, uh, we need to address first before we get into the actual differences and all these things. First of all, the difference between Sunnah and Shia, that gets, you know, people bring it up a lot, even non-Muslims. It's a very known thing that there's a, a division within Muslims. At least the, the known division is between the Sunnah and the Shia, right? There are other sects, but the main division is between the Sunnah and the Shia. And wallahi, even non-Muslims, people who know very little about Islam, they ask, oh, so are you, what are you, Sunnah or Shia? Like they kind of, you know, they, they feel like they know this. This is a very known or well-known thing about Muslims, even to non-Muslims who know very little about Islam. So that is one thing. Another thing, by the way, I talked about this. Uh, I had a topic called Sunnah versus other sects, and I addressed the Shia sect 
within you know within that episode but i never had a fully dedicated episode to explain little by little what are the differences and all these things so inshallah what that's what i'm doing today uh, a third thing keep in mind that i am from the sunnah i follow the sunnah of the prophet alhamdulillah so just keep that in mind so if you're a, a shia out there who's listening just you know uh, well, this is a disclaimer that i am from the sunnah i believe that the sunnah is the correct because by the way they both cannot be correct do you understand there's a main major very major theological differences between both between the sunni and the shia and by the way between all sects and but by the way also and we're going to talk about this the prophet ﷺ himself told us about this division so don't worry. Like for those who are like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? The Muslims are very divided. I thought it was just one religion, one book. It is one book. It's the Quran is one book. We believe in Allah. We believe in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. By the way, Sunnah, Shia, Sufi, you name it. We all believe in Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala that He's the only God, and we believe in the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that He is the, you know, the final messenger. Well, there is a clause here for the Shia, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But my point is, we believe in that. So it is one religion. It's just they have major theolo- we there 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 are major theological, uh, sorry, theological differences between both sects, which makes it impossible for both sects to be correct. So because I'm a Sunni, I believe that, and I'm gonna give you inshallah the logical reasons at the end. I, I promise. I'm not gonna just leave you hanging. I promise, inshallah. Uh, but I believe that this is it is this is the only. By the way, the Prophet himself in a hadith said there's only one sect upon the truth. We're going to talk about that and why the Prophet mentioned that and what are the indications of that one sect. Inshallah, we're going to talk about that. Here's the thing, though. Yes, there are differences. Yes, I believe in the uh, in the Sunnah of the Prophet uh, and you know, uh, and I believe that we should follow all the the behaviors and the hadith of the prophet the authentic ones of course however that does not negate the fact that we should be respectable we should respect one another yes we are different there's no deny there's we have major differences major differences we're not the same we're not the same anyone who tells you oh it's all the same no 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 we're not that's the sad reality by the way it is a sad reality but it's reality we're not the same. But as Muslims, we have to respect one another. We have to. You have, it doesn't make any sense. It's no one will benefit from disrespecting one another. And, you know, yes, we have differences, but if we let those differences cause any kind of very heated, disrespectful debate, even sometimes people get into altercations and, and physical and fights and, that's not how a Muslim should behave. We know that. We all know that. So, yes, we are different, but we should talk about you know our differences in a very respectable manner, in a very civilized manner, and you know we can argue no problem in a civilized way, bring proof from the Quran, from the Sunnah, from logic, as a matter of fact, right? And we're going to talk about that all today, inshallah. So I just wanted you guys, you know, wanted to let you guys know this ahead of time. Now. A lot of people might be surprised to know that we were actually, all of mankind, we were just one nation. 
we weren't different nations, different countries, different civilizations. It was one nation. During the time of Prophet Nuh, Noah, he was preaching Islam to one nation, which is all of mankind. They all existed in one location, one place. SubhanAllah. Then the flooding came. Then, you know, after that, after the human race survived, people spread out in on earth and then we became different cultures different you know different civilizations different everything right and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually tells us this in the chapter of baqarah verse number 213 allah is saying all of mankind were one nation you guys were one nation then you went your separate ways and you became different. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent you or sent to every nation their own prophet and messenger except for Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah sent him what? This is in the Quran. Rahmatan lil'alameen. He was the only one who was sent to all of mankind, all of civilizations. For those who claim that Islam was targeted or intended only for Arabs, that is completely untrue. It's not accurate. It's not true. Islam is meant for all of mankind. And if they reject it, it doesn't matter from what civilization, speak Arabic, you don't. That's why we explain Islam in English, right? In French, in, uh, you know, Mandarin. And there are, uh, do you have preachers, mashallah, alhamdulillah, people who preach Islam in all languages, so you don't have any excuses. If you reject it, then Allah's punishment will befall. Uh, if you accept it, then inshallah you shall be from you know the saved ones. But my point is, we were one nation in the beginning. Then we were separate. As a matter of fact, Allah subhanahu wa taala in the chapter of Hud, verse number one eighteen, He tells us what. وَلَوْ شَاءَ رَبُّكَ لَجَعَلَ النَّاسَ أُمَّةً وَاحِدَةً وَلَا يَزَالُ مُخْتَلِفِينَ Allah is telling us, <clears throat> if I wanted to, I would have made you go back to being one nation. But you will still be different nations. Okay? This is, a, a, this is something, you know, from Allah's wisdom. Allah has a wisdom. Now, one of those wisdoms Allah actually mentioned, Allah said, I made you different uh, nations, different people, different countries, so you get to know one another. Basically, life becomes more interesting, fascinating. Okay? So, it is the sunnah of life. This is the way of life. Here's the thing though. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala follows that verse in the chapter of Hud by saying what? So Allah is saying, if I willed, I would have made you go back to being one nation, but you shall still be different. Except for those who Allah have mercy on. Basically, except for those who Allah blessed. Who are those people? Who? Can you guess? Who that we call one nation? Muslims. Muslims. So here's the interesting, interesting, fascinating picture. Just just think about it for a second. Just I want you to use your imagination with me here. Allah told us that we were one nation. Okay? So we were one nation. All of mankind. All of mankind. One, what I call it, One country, one town, whatever you want to call it. Then Allah caused us to split. We became different. We went different ways, different lands, and we became different civilizations, different nations. Okay? 
And Allah is saying, I kept it that way and you will still be that way. Except for those who I have mercy upon. Those who are blessed. You shall go from being different, from being separate, to being one nation. Talking about the Muslims. If you look at someone, if you go to a mosque right now, and you see, what would you see? Now, not all mosques. Some mosques are very culture-based, which is, I mean, shouldn't be, but again, it maybe it depends on the location. But you could go to a mosque, see a white person next to a black person, next to a brown person. You see someone from Europe standing next to someone from the U.S., from Egypt, from Lebanon, from Australia, from South Africa, from any country. Am I correct? All of them, from Asia, South Asia, from Pakistan, from doesn't matter. You'll see from multiple countries standing one line right next to each other, praying at the same time, doing the same prayers. That is the blessings of Allah. That's what Allah is talking about. Except, illa marrahima rabbuk. Except for those that Allah have bestowed mercy upon or gave mercy to. Why? Why is Allah describing that being one nation is a type of mercy? Because look at the love. I always say, my brothers and sisters in Islam, Wallahi, I mean it. We get excited and happy when someone tells us, like Sister Elisa right here saying, she became a Muslim. It makes us happy. I've never met Sister Elisa, probably never will, but it makes me happy that now the family, the one nation of Islam is added by one. Do you understand? This is mercy from Allah. We have one family, one body like the Prophet ﷺ said. What did the Prophet ﷺ say about being one nation? The Prophet ﷺ said in an authentic hadith, all Muslims are like one body, right? If one body part, if one part of that body feels pain, gets injured, the rest of the body aches and feels that pain. So if you get scratched, if you get injured in one part of that body, the rest of your body feels the pain. That's what the Muslims should be. That's why when you see refugees who are suffering, Muslims, you know, uh, that recently with the with the the the, the earthquake in, in Morocco, the the flooding in Libya, the 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 earthquake in, in Turkey, all these things in Syria, all the massacres happening around the world to the Muslims, we should feel hurt. That's a sign of belief and sign of connection with all the Muslims. Because you have to think about it this way. Those people who are suffering are people who are saying, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. They share that with you, your belief. So Allah is saying, this is the mercy that I kept the Muslims together as one nation. SubhanAllah. It's amazing, Wallah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep us steadfast upon the perfect religion of Islam. Anyway, <clears throat> now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, after he's saying, I get, you know, as a form of mercy, I made certain people, of course, only the Muslims can call themselves one nation. Do you guys understand? Like, get any, like, talk to your average non-Muslim American and bring them with someone from Europe, bring them with someone from Africa, someone from Australia and Asia put them together and say, are you guys one nation? If they're not Muslims, they're going to say, no, we're not. What are you talking about? 
and they, by the way, they are true. They, they're actually speaking the truth. They're not one nation. There's nothing that connects them except being human beings. That's it. Now get the same, like get people from the same places, the same locations, same countries, same continents. But bring them as Muslims. Bring Muslims from those countries. Put them in a room. Ask them that question. Are you guys one nation? Yes, we are. We're Muslims. Yeah, we're Muslims. Alhamdulillah, we're all Muslims. One nation. Those are my brothers and sisters in that room. Isn't that beautiful? Wallahi. Nobody looks at it this way, unfortunately. I mean, I know so many people do, but the majority, they don't look at it that way. And this is Allah's telling us in the Quran how brilliant, how brilliant and how loving, and it is truly indeed a mercy from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we can call one another as one nation. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually tell us in the chapter of Anbiya, verse number 92, inna, talking to the Muslims now, Allah is addressing the Muslims. You are one nation. He's telling us. He's command. This is one. He's not. This is not an insinuation and an indication. Allah is telling us this is one nation. You are, or you belong to one nation, and I am your Lord, and you shall worship me as one. Look at this in the chapter of Hujurat, verse number 10. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said what? The believers are siblings. Allah is saying, brothers and sisters, ikhwa. So fix your issues between one another. Allah is saying, Aslihu bayna ikhwaikum. Fix your issues with one another. Uh, and fear Allah. And have conscious of Allah because if you do that, Allah's mercy will be upon you. So, again, the evidence from the Quran is numerous. It's plenty of evidence in the Quran that we should all be one nation. As a matter of fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands us in the chapter of Ala Imran, verse number 103. The very famous verse, by the way. Again, this is a very famous verse. Uh, I, by the way, I knew about this verse when I was a little kid. Allah's commanding us. Hold on to the rope of Allah. Rope of Allah. Now, the rope of Allah, it literally means faith. The one thing that we should all hang on to being Muslims, being one nation. All of you, talking to all the Muslims, all the believers, all of you hold on to the rope of Allah. Basically your faith, the common thing between all of you. And do not go separate ways. Do not differ in a unhealthy way do not leave one another stick together now look at the opposite because by the way splitting into sects or divisions in islam is prohibited it's prohibited in the chapter of al-an'am verse number 159 allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said what in the shay'. إِنَّمَا أَمْرُهُمْ إِلَى اللَّهِ ثُمَّ يَنَبِئُهُمْ بِمَا كَانُوا يَفْعَلُونَ 
Allah is saying, by the way, the word Shia, for those of you who heard the word Shia, the word Shia literally means sect. Shia in Arabic language means a sect, right? A party or group. That's why when people, the Shia, they call themselves the Shia of Ali, they basically say we are the sect or the group of Ali. So Allah is saying, do not become or divide yourselves into groups, into sects. And he's saying basically you should disassociate yourselves from those who divide themselves into or their religion into uh, sects. And on the day of judgment you shall be told or you shall be judged uh, based on what you've done. Again, if you've done evil by separating the Muslims, dividing Muslims into sects, then you shall answer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment. And again, the list goes on. The verses go, like, it's just plenty of verses about we are one nation. In a world that Allah separated all of mankind into different nations, different cultures, Allah saying one nation. Yeah, different cultures, yeah. But you're still one nation as Muslims. And those who will try to break that one nation, that unity, shall be from the transgressors and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish them on the day of judgment. But again, the fact of the matter is we are different. We have different sects. The Prophet told us about this. He predicted it because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told him what will happen in the future. So it is what it is. Again, we unfortunately do not do everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told us to do and we shall be held accountable if we have any part of you know disobeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now here's something very interesting. The Prophet ﷺ, remember, and we talked about this by the way, when we talked about the minor signs of the Day of Judgment. You're going to remember this hadith inshallah if you listen to the episode. One of the minor signs of the Day of Judgment is what? Civil war between Muslims. Civil war between Muslims. And we mentioned this very interesting hadith. The Prophet ﷺ said what? He said, سَأَلْتُ اللَّهَ ثَلَاثَ I asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for three things. He gave me two and denied me one. Now, maybe some of you now, it's uh, it's coming back to them, that hadith, right? I asked Allah for three. He gave me two and denied me one. Okay. What are the three things that the Prophet ﷺ asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The first one is, Oh Allah, do not uh, destroy us uh, like you destroyed the previous nations. Oh Allah, now let's talk about Ad and Thamud. Those are nations that completely were destroyed. Completely destroyed. So the Prophet is making dua to Allah. Oh Allah, please do not destroy the Muslims, even if they transgress. Even if they go astray, do not destroy them completely like you destroyed previous nations. So Allah granted him that wish or that dua. Second one. Oh Allah, do not make any non-Muslim destroy the Muslims. Do not make the, the Muslims be destroyed by a non-Muslim enemy. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also granted the Prophet this wish, this dua. The third one, Oh Allah, the Prophet asked, Oh Allah, do not allow the Muslims to fight one another. Do not basically let them or do not allow civil war to take place between the Muslims, Allah denied that request. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala denied that request. He said, no, Muslims, if they fight with one another, and Allah knows that we will fight one another, they will be allowed to fight one another. 
And of course, there's a wisdom that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala denied that request. Now, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, this is authentic hadith. And I know a lot of people, unfortunately, from the other side, from you know Shia or even from different sects, they don't believe in this hadith. They don't like it because, again, by the way, the hadith is as authentic as it gets. It's, it's confirmed in all books of Sirah. The Prophet said what? And you'll know why they don't like to believe in it or they, they uh, have a problem with the hadith. The Prophet said, In Qasamat al Yahudu li ihda wa sabina shatran. Basically, the Prophet is saying the Jews, the Jewish nation, were split into 71 sects. Okay? He's talking to the companions. Then the Prophet continued. The Christians have divided into or split into 72 sects. Then the Muslims will, of course, because this didn't happen during the time of the Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told them that this will happen in the future. So he said, then the Muslims will be split or will be divided into 73 sects. So the prediction by the Prophet that basically coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Muslims again. He was telling the companions. He gave a, a, an example of the uh, of the Jews of the Christians. Now he's saying the Muslims will be divided into seventy three sects. Here's the interesting comment: "Kulluhum they're all in hell fire. All the seventy three, except for one. Illa wahida." So the companions asked, which one is that, O Prophet of Allah? The answer was very explicit. مَا عَلَيْهِ أَنَا وَأَصْحَابِي Whatever I am on my ways and the ways of my companions. So the Prophet is basically saying all the 73 sects will believe in the Quran. Now the division comes in, the Sunnah. 73 will be divided. Only one won't enter hellfire. All 72 will enter hellfire. One will remain. And when the companions asked, which one is that? He said, Ma alayhi ana wa Those basically who follow my sunnah and the sunnah of my companions, which whatever my companions do because of me, if you follow that, then you shall be from the one that enters paradise, inshallah. And we believe, and again, with all due respects to other sects, that this is its actually in the name, the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, the main, when we divide now the Muslim nation into sects, we said there are 73 now, some are known, some are not known, some have disappeared. This is throughout time until the Day of Judgment, basically. The Prophet ﷺ mentioned the 73 sects. That's like gonna, you know, some of them will come, some of them will go, some of them will be unknown to the majority. We know very few, right? There's the Ahmadi, there is the Quraniyun, those who do not believe in the Sunnah at all. You know, again, the the, the Sunnah and the Shia, the Sufi, all those things, right? The main one, the predominant sect in Islam, the overwhelming, actually, majority of Muslims are from the Sunnah. It's actually estimated a year ago or two years ago 
between 88 and 90% of the Muslims, which is, again, the predominant uh, percentage. Now, the Shia are about 9 to 10%. The Shia are from 9 to, which is makes it the second largest uh, sect in Islam. However, if you compare, you know, 90% to, you know, uh, to like 10%, it's like, you know, it's nine to one ratio, which is, again, there is no comparison. But again, if you're talking statistically speaking, they are the second largest uh, sect in Islam. Then the rest of the uh, basically sects are, you know, 1% or 2 per whatever. Like they're, they're very few in comparison to, uh, they're all very few in comparison to Sunnah, but to compared to Sunnah and Shia, like if you have 1% or so, like Sufi or the Quranics are even less than 1%, then they are very insignificant in terms of quantity. So that is the first thing, that the, the, the Sunnah is the predominant sect in Islam, the overwhelming majority, again, 90%, around 90%. Now, because the Shia is the second largest uh, sect in Islam, that's what makes people always draw a comparison between these two sects. That's what makes even non-Muslims, because again, if Shia was like 1%, nobody would have commented. If there were 2%, nobody, but because they are about almost 10%, then people are like, okay, well, there's a percentage right there. Let's. What are the differences now? People are curious about the differences between both, and we should learn about the differences from you know an educational uh, point of view. It's very, and again, you know, how I um, always advocate for knowledge. You should gain knowledge as long as they're coming from authentic sources. You should learn about anything you can. And I have a surprise for you, inshallah. Um, As a matter of fact, next episode, inshallah, next episode will be a very packed episode. I, I should not, you know, tease you with this now, but it's, let's say that it's related to one of my favorite topics of all time, which is knowledge. Uh, and it's going to be a very packed, very, inshallah, beneficial episode to all of you. But let's just stick to the point. So, yeah, so we need to know that, and we need to know the difference between uh, both. Now, there are a couple of differences like the, in terms of categories. For example, the sources of knowledge. So now let's, let's go into the actual differences between both uh, sects. When it comes to the sources of knowledge, let's take the sunnah, for example, uh, first. We, uh, a Sunni, or the Sunnah, they believe in the uh, Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, meaning what is the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ? It is the behavior of the Prophet ﷺ, the words uh, uh, that are basically manifested as hadith and the actions of the Prophet ﷺ. Now, like I said before, but I'm going to repeat it for the sake of today's topic, hadith is also a revelation from Allah. Not just Quran. Hadith is not something that the Prophet came up with and he told us and we have to follow. No. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explicitly in the chapter of Najm, verse number three and four, Allah said what? وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَى هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَى Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling us Prophet Muhammad sallallahu does not speak from his own self, from his own intellect, from his own desire, from his own whims and no, 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 no. Anything he tells you about the religion, anything he tells you to do, anything he does, in huwa illa wahinyo, it's all a revelation from me. 
It's a wahi. Wahi in Arabic means a revelation. This is explicit in the Quran, which, by the way, the majority of the Shia believe in as well, the Quran. So again, the Prophet ﷺ himself, when he talks about, when there's a hadith, when he's telling us about something, when he's telling us to do something, when he's forbidding us from doing something, this is coming from Allah. Now, the difference between Quran and hadith is what? Quran is the speech, the actual speech of Allah. Allah spoke the words of the Quran as is. The Prophet ﷺ, literally, it's copy-paste. Allah spoke it to Jibreel, Angel Gabriel. Angel Gabriel spoke it to the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ told the companions to write it as is, and he spoke it the same way. Now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals something to the Prophet ﷺ. Then the Prophet ﷺ is left, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala leaves the, the choice of words for the Prophet ﷺ, that is called hadith. Both coming from Allah, one is the actual exact speech of Allah the other one is that the wording is left to the Prophet ﷺ, which is the hadith okay so I hope that uh, again clarifies the difference between hadith and Quran now some of the things uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually in the Quran tells us Allah is telling us explicitly whatever the Prophet ﷺ tells you to do you have to do this is in the chapter of Hashr, verse number 7. So it's explicit in the Quran. You have to listen to the commands of the Prophet. And when he says, do this, you do it. It becomes actually mandatory. His actions, when he doesn't tell us you have to do this, is optional. That's the optional sunnah. But when he tells you, you have to do this, then you have to do this. You cannot do this, then you cannot do this. It becomes also forbidden. This is in the Quran. Whatever the Prophet gives you as a command, you have to obey. And whatever he forbids you from doing, you cannot do. This is the chapter of Hash, verse number 7. Also in the chapter of Nisa, verse number 59. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, obey Allah and obey the Prophet. It's all in the Quran. So, because there is, like I said, there's a sect called the Qur'aniyun, the Qur'anics, who only believe in the Qur'an. They don't believe in the Sunnah. They don't follow the Sunnah. This is the most unrealistic sect in Islam, because in the Qur'an that you believe in, as a Qur'anic, if you are Qur'anic, it tells you you have to obey the Prophet. But then you don't obey the Prophet, so you do not obey the Qur'an, the only source of knowledge that you, you know, perceive as the only source. You don't even obey. You don't even follow it. You don't follow that source. And the funny thing is those who do not follow the sunnah and they say that they pray five times a day, again, those who are called Quranic, where did the prayers come from? How do you know how to pray? It's not mentioned in the Quran. It's mentioned in the Quran that you have to pray. But how to pray? It's only mentioned in the sunnah. Why? Because Allah wanted to explicitly show you the power of the sunnah. Allah did not tell you how to pray in the Quran on purpose. So you have to follow the sunnah in your prayers. Come on. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty obvious. Anyway. Now, the Shia, uh, they believe in the Quran. Uh, or let's say the overwhelming majority of them believe in the Quran. And they follow Ali ibn Abi Talib. They do not follow all the sunnah and i'm going to tell you which sunnah they follow exactly but they do not follow the, actually the majority of the sunnah they do not follow 
They, they follow parts of the sunnah. And they follow Ali ibn Abi Talib. Now, anything in the hadith. Now, how do we receive hadith? It, it is narrated by companions, based on other companions, all traced all the way back to the Prophet ﷺ, right? Now, the Shia only take the hadith that are coming from Alul Bayt or the biological family members of the Prophet ﷺ. Why? I'm going to tell you uh, when we talk about other points. But for now, just know that. So, the hadith that's coming from the biological not even the wife of the Prophet she's not biologically related to him, by the way. They don't consider Aisha. As a matter of fact, they have problems with Aisha. We'll talk about that. But his wife is not biologically related to him. Anyone who is from his blood, basically, then they believe in that hadith. Otherwise, they do not take, uh, they reject uh, the other uh, hadith by the companions. Now, they believe in they follow Ali ibn Abi Talib. He is the cousin, the biological cousin of the Prophet Now, who is Ali ibn Abi Talib for those who listen to season four? Ali ibn Abi Talib is the cousin of the Prophet He is the first teenager to, from the males to uh, believe in the Prophet Abu Bakr was the first male. Khadija, of course, the wife of the Prophet was the first female. Uh, and Ali was the first, young, the first young boy or the first youth uh, or young guy to believe in the Prophet Now, Ali ibn Abi Talib is a biological, uh, like I said, is a biological uh, blood relative to, to the Prophet ﷺ. But Ali has also a very special status for the Shia. It's all based on Ali, by the way. All based on Ali ibn Abi Talib. Uh, by the way, you guys remember the, the the uncle who was the most beloved uncle to the Prophet ﷺ who died as a disbeliever. And the Prophet ﷺ was on his deathbed trying to convince him. Remember, we always bring up that example. That's his son. Ali is actually the son of the uncle of the Prophet that we always talk about. Now, so that is the first difference in terms of the sources of knowledge. Now, there is a difference, second difference is in the Quran. We believe that the Quran has never been manipulated nor it will ever be manipulated. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually gave us a promise in the Quran that he will protect the Quran until the day of judgment. We believe that the Quran coming from Allah through Angel Jibreel to the Prophet right? And it will always be preserved. That's why you never find any contradicting thing in the Quran, despite what people might try to do and fake contradictions. And I've got into those debates. It's it's again, it's very enlightening how people might perceive certain things. But again, Quran has nothing contradicting. It is perfection, Wallahi. Perfection. The word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And it shall be preserved There is no other versions of the Quran Only one And it shall be preserved Until the day of judgment And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this In the chapter of Hijr Verse number 9 This is an oath by Allah I brought down dhikr Dhikr here means the Quran And I shall preserve it Until the day of judgment also in the chapter of Kahf, verse number 27. No one shall ever, shall ever modify a single word in the Quran or hide a single word in the Quran or do whatever, add a single word in the Quran. No one can switch up all, any of the words in the Quran. No one. Allah is again giving us, making us that promise. 
the Quran will be preserved until the day of judgment. And Allah is almighty. He's capable of doing all of that. Now, here comes how Shia perceive the Quran. The majority, they believe in it. But you have a, a group of Shia, some of them, they believe that the Quran is incomplete. And the reason why believe, they believe that the Quran is incomplete is because they believe that the companions hid certain verses from the Quran. And I'm going to get to why they think that. But for now, they believe that. Again, it's not, I, I believe they're not the majority, nor they're nearly uh, you know half. I think they're way less than the majority. They are the minority who believe that again the quran is income they believe in the current quran by the way they don't think it's manipulated they don't believe that it's modified they just believe that there are certain verses in the quran that were missing now to respond to this if the quran was incomplete trust me it would be very obvious quran itself is perfection it's perfect the way it is and if you believe in the current version of the quran the only version of the quran you'll contradict yourself if you believe that there's something missing from the Qur'an because I just recited those verses to you that Allah promised that no one shall take any words from the Qur'an and Allah will preserve it until the day of judgment. So do you believe in the Qur'an or not? Because if you say, oh, I believe in the Qur'an, but I believe that maybe something happened that the companions took away some verses, but then that, that contradicts because you, if you believe that Allah is Allah, He's capable of protecting the Qur'an, then this does not make any sense. Do you, you, you get what I'm getting at? Like you believe in the version, in what we have, the Quran that we have, that you call the current version, even though you think it's incomplete. Okay, but in this version that you are looking at, the only again, I keep saying version in the current Quran, because they believe that there is a, a more full Quran that was disappeared, right? So now you believe in this Quran. But in this Qur'an, Allah is saying no one shall touch the Qur'an and it shall be preserved fully until the Day of Judgment. Then you don't actually believe in the Qur'an because you're contradicting yourself. So that is something that, and again, it, it kind of, we know Allah is almighty. And when Allah makes a promise, Allah fulfills the promise. So you're saying that Allah wouldn't fulfill His promise. I, I don't know. And again, I'm not trying to instigate anything. Wallahi, no. I'm just, it's very fascinating. Like, I'm wondering, I'm truly, from even a logical perspective, a logical point of view, how are you thinking that Quran is in Kupa? And I know it's, again, inshallah, the minority of the Shia, not all of them, or not even close to the majority, but it's just very interesting that it's kind of self contradicting. But anyway, that's. Uh, what the uh, Shia uh, you know believe in that and again there's no proof no evidence it's just because they don't they have problems with uh, the companions they do have issues with the companions so they claim that the companions must have hidden something from the Quran there's not a single proof of that not a single proof I, actually it's quite the opposite there's solid proof from the Quran and from multiple historians that this is the only version that's it. You don't find any other version popping up or any like missing verse that popped up. It just doesn't make any sense. But anyway, so that is regarding the Quran. Now let's move on to a big one that it's actually a big deal. Number three, I think that the third difference, which is the concept of imams. Now the Shia believe in, and we're going to start with the Shia on this one because it's actually a Shia concept. The concept of imams is a very interesting concept. They believe that the biological family of the Prophet ﷺ are infallible. 
they're infallible, meaning they do not, they're incapable of making mistakes. They're incapable of sinning. They're literally infallible. They do not make mistakes. Look at this. They believe that the family status, that infallibility, if you want to call it, that like, you know, that this, I don't know, like this perfection in, in a human being, that status of the family of the Prophet ﷺ, it actually comes second to Quran. Like I said, for us, second comes Sunnah. As a matter of fact, they come hand in hand, but after Quran, Sunnah, immediately. And it's as critical as Quran, by the way, because again, Sunnah interprets many verses in the Quran. Without Sunnah, you cannot understand Quran. To them, it's Quran, then the status of the family of the Prophet. ﷺ. Okay? Also, to them, leadership is religious. I'm getting into who are the Imams. I'm just trying to make you understand the concepts little by little, the, the whole structure of belief when it comes to the Imamah. I'm trying to make you understand that. Then I'm going to, inshallah, tell you who are the Imams. So, again, they believe that leadership is religious. And they believe that the political leadership, or if you get a political leader, they are the same as religious leaders, okay? And those leaders are called imams. So they believe that imams must be from the house of the Prophet As a matter of fact, blood relatives. They have to come, they have to be biologically related to the Prophet Not through marriage, biologically related, Okay? Here's a very interesting thing. Now, the imam is mean, it means the rulers or the leaders. It's not that imam of the masjid. This is not the imam of the mosque. It's different. The word imam in concept means the leader. So they believe in leaders, certain leaders that are, they have to be from the house of the Prophet and they are infallible. They do not commit any sins. They do not make any mistakes. They're basically superhumans. Seriously, wallahi, I'm not being facetious. They are superhumans. Right, and that they are here's here's a big one. They are they believe that those imams, those leaders, are assigned by Allah Himself, assigned by God, and that they have absolute power when it comes to the religion. And they believe also that they communicate. They they used to. I mean, they they died. Uh, they believe that again. They those imams they came after started. They actually they believe that the first imam was Ali ibn Abi Talib, Ali himself. The cousin of the Prophet ﷺ, he was the first Imam, and then you have others that came after him. We're gonna get into that in a second. But they believe that those Imams used to communicate with Allah after the death of the Prophet. ﷺ. We believe that the last human being to communicate with Allah was who? The Prophet. ﷺ. Allah does not communicate with human beings just like that. But again, it's the status that they have that basically says, No, 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 they communicate with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh uh, that's why they have absolute power, absolute, uh, you know, their verdict is, is is absolute. Whatever they say about the religion, uh, interpretation of the Quran, they uh, are correct 100% because they are infallible. They also believe that they possess all the knowledge. As a matter of fact, they believe that they have more knowledge than the prophets and the messengers. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Very interesting. Uh, they believe, like I said, that they are superhumans. Wallahi, no joke. They believe that they are kind of a superhumans, even on a physical, in a physical way. And they believe that following those imams, those leaders, is the only way to paradise. Follow their uh, teachings, their rulings, all these things up until this day is the only, you know, we say that the only path to Jannah is Quran and Sunnah, right? To them is the only path to Jannah, to paradise, is Quran and those imams. 
So they kind of switched the sunnah with the imams. Now, they also believe that the Prophet ﷺ from the beginning appointed Ali ibn Abi Talib to be the first leader of the Muslims after he dies. And that's why he was praising Ali all the time. And praising Ali was an indication that he wanted him to become the leader. So the, the key points here, they are infallible. They should be the leaders. They should come from the house of the Prophet ﷺ. Again, biological relatives of the Prophet ﷺ. They are assigned by Allah. They are assigned by God. Uh, they communicate with God. They have absolute power and absolute rule like that when it comes to ruling uh, on religion. They have absolute power because again, they communicate with God. They do not make mistakes. They do not sin. They possess all the knowledge and following them and only following them uh, after the Quran leads to paradise, otherwise hellfire. So that is uh, for the Shia. That is the concept of imams. Now, since we don't have a sunnah, the sunnah group, they do not have the concept of imama, we don't have that. We, we don't believe in imams. We do not believe that one person could have absolute power. We do not believe that one person or any human being was able to communicate directly to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and get knowledge and get assigned by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala after the death of the Prophet Nobody. Right? So because we do not have that concept, now let's talk about the problems that sunnah have with this concept. I mean, it makes sense because, again, we don't have any equivalent concept. We believe, like, for example, we believe that, uh, first of all, we love and respect Alul Bayt, the people, the family of the Prophet, the biological family of the Prophet, if they were righteous. We do not believe that anyone in this existence is infallible, by the way. No one is infallible. We're all sinners. We all make mistakes, including the companions. We do not believe that a human being could be infallible. Now, let me give you an example. Do you guys know there's a chapter in the Quran called the chapter of Masad? And this chapter talks about the uncle of the Prophet, Abu Lahab. And in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Sayasla naran lahab. So in the chapter of Masad, Verse number three, Allah said, Sayyidina talking about Abu Lahab. Allah is saying he will spend eternity in hellfire. He will be burnt in hellfire. He is a biological relative. He's the literally the biological uncle of the Prophet. He is very fallible. He's actually a disbeliever. So how are you saying that? The, the family of the Prophet are infallible. It's very contradicting to history, to the Quran itself. Okay, leave Abu Lahab uh, aside. Abu Talib, the father of Ali himself, the father of Ali. We always talk about his story. He died as a disbeliever, even though he was so good to the Muslims and he wanted to convert to Islam. But... The uh, idea of tribalism and ancestry and, you know, Abu Jahl was there, try to convince him to do not ever take the shahada. Are you going to, you know, disappoint your parents and grandparents? Do not do that. And because of that, and the Prophet was crying, he wanted him to say the shahada, to say the testimony of faith. He eventually refused, even though he was kind to the Muslims. But 
that does not exempt him for spending eternity in hellfire. He will be punished the least because he did so much good to help the Muslims against the people of Quraysh and against the disbelievers, but he will spend eternity in hellfire. He's not infallible. He is fallible. Do you understand? And he is the most beloved uncle. He was the most beloved uncle to the Prophet he is more than just blood relative. He's more than just a biological uncle. The Prophet ﷺ loved him so much because he raised the Prophet. ﷺ. He protected the Prophet ﷺ even though he was a disbeliever. And he's still going to go to hellfire. The Prophet ﷺ actually himself tells us He, my uncle, will spend eternity in hellfire, but he will be punished the least. Which, by the way, is still severe. And the Prophet ﷺ described the punishment. He said that his foot will be in hellfire, only his feet. Like not his whole body like everybody else. Only his feet will be in half fire. And because of how severe half fire will be, his brain will be boiling. The blood in his brain will be boiling from the pain and the heat that are touching his feet. That he would think he has the worst punishment even though he has the least punishment. Imagine, my dear brothers and sisters, how punishment will be like in hellfire. If the least punished person will have his brain boiling and thinking he's being punished the most, how about us? And What about us and what about the disbelievers? May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us from hellfire. But anyway, I don't see that these two uncles are infallible. They make mistakes. They actually died upon disbelief, which is the worst mistake that a human being could make. So we disagree with the Shia on the concept of infallibility. We do not believe in that. It does not make any sense to us. Now, we believe that the last religious leader, the one who communicated with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and after his death, revelation stopped. As a matter of fact, the companions used to cry because they said that they missed the Prophet after his death. And also they used to feel so sad that they said, we know that with the death of the Prophet we're not going to receive any revelation from Allah. Our direct connection to Allah is not there anymore. Now, we still can make dua to Allah and Allah will listen to you and ask Allah for things. But we're talking about revelation-wise. It was depressing to the to the companions. So for now, now for you to say there are imams the leaders who came after Ali or including Ali and you know rulers after who ruled the Muslims and they communicate directly to Allah and they get knowledge from Allah and they are assigned by Allah yeah that, that contradicts the sunnah contradicts our logic in the first place now to the sunnah also leaders are political leaders not religious any leader by the way any if, if you go to any Muslim country, the president is a political leader, not religious one. Even in Saudi Arabia, the leader is a political leader. He's not a religious leader. We don't have that yet. Now, there are exceptions and, and, and does not make them one, but some political leaders have knowledge in the religion, like maybe the, 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 the king of Saudi Arabia or God knows, I don't know who exactly has knowledge. I don't know them personally. But this happened during the time of what? The companions. Abu Bakr Siddiq, after the Prophet passed away, he took leadership. He became the first leader of the Muslims after the death of the Prophet. He was a scholar, technically. In our terms, he was a scholar. He knew everything about the religion that needs to be known from the Prophet. 
Umar ibn al-Khattab after Abu Bakr. He was a scholar. But they were still political leaders. They were scholars. They had incredible knowledge in a religion or of the religion, but they were political leaders. The only ultimate religious leader was the Prophet ﷺ and it ends with him. That's it. You know, even we talk about Al-Mahdi and we have a story about Al-Mahdi in our topic today. But even we said, even Al-Mahdi when he comes, he will be a political leader, not a religious one. He will unite the Muslims, yes. But he will still be a political leader. Also, what we have a problem with regarding the concept of imams is that there is not a single human being who has absolute power. No one has all the knowledge in a religion. That's why, what are our sources as sunnah now? What are the sources of religion? Quran, the sunnah, which is the hadith or the behavior of the Prophet and the consensus, the people with knowledge, the consensus of the scholars. That's why, and by the way, the consensus of the scholars are always regarding ambiguous things in the religion. The things that are not explicit in the Quran nor the sunnah, and they are minor. Like remember, we said it's like five percent of the entire religion. Now we look at the consensus of the scholars. So, no one has absolute power. Also, we as Sunnah we believe that none of the imams claimed that they were imams or claimed that they had these uh, traits, if you want to call it. So Ali ibn Abi Talib never claimed that he was appointed by God. Never claimed that he's infallible. Never claimed any of this. Al-Hasan, which is the son of Ali, who is the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ, never claimed that he was the second, Hassan was the second imam, Al-Husayn was his brother, Hussein was the third imam. They never claimed that they were infallible. They never claimed that they never make mistakes. They never claimed that they connect with God. They never claimed any of this. None of them. There is not a single statement by Ali or Hassan or Hussein or any of the imams that followed claim that they are infallible or they are have superpowers or that they, again, are appointed by God. Because by the way, fr- from the Shia perspective, the imams are part of theology. The- there are theolo- like the existence of imams is theological. For us, it's not at all because we don't believe. No, we believe they existed, but they had none of these traits. They were normal human beings. They made mistakes sometimes. They were not infallible. And they were, for the most part, they were righteous people as far as we know. And we love them because they are the family of the Prophet as long as they were righteous. Do you guys understand? Remember I always tell you there's no such thing as unconditional love? Yeah, that's what we believe in. If you are righteous, if you know Allah, if you're good, then you shall have our love and our respect. But... If you make mistakes and if you're a terrible human being, then we're not because you were, again, like I said, Abu Lahab, Abu Talib, they are from the family of the Prophet. We can't praise them. They will go to hellfire. We cannot praise them. We only praise the righteous and the pious from the family of the Prophet, and actually any companion or any Muslim in general. So to me, that makes more uh, logical sense. Uh, now, that, like I said, the, the, the imams, they, we believe as sunnah that they never claimed any of this about themselves. However, the Shia group that, you know, the, the, the afterwards, by the way, the, the idea of separating sunnah and Shia was not even there during their time, during the time of the imams, during the time of Ali, during the time, none of that, during the companions, none of that existed. This is a more recent thing. I believe 632 uh, AD, 
or in the 7th century. So during the companions, that division never existed. That's why the Prophet predicted back then that it will happen in the future. And of course, indeed, I mean, it happened early on, but it never happened during the time of Ali himself. Hence, none of that, those descriptions or those traits, they were not there, they were not common, and they were just trying their best to lead the Muslims in the right direction. That was all. Now, the fourth difference is the structure of the, the, the religion itself or the sect itself. So we as the, the people of Sunnah, we have only one sect, but we have four different schools of thought. We had a whole episode about that. Please go back and listen to it. But what's important to realize is that all four schools of thought, their goal was to serve the Sunnah, not to have their own belief from the Sunnah, because that would have made them a different sect. They were all striving, all the four Imams, and those Imams are different from the Imams of the Shia, separate that. The Imams, uh, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, uh, Imam al-Shafi'i, al-Hanbali, al-Maliki, all these Imams, right? And Abu Hanifa, all four Imams, they came up with the four, because they were trying to interpret that 5%, the ambiguous 5% of the religion. And we gave examples. Please go back to the episode if you're, if you're curious about it, and inshallah, you'll find it there. I think it was in the last season. Uh, and basically, they came back and they they, they they came up with four schools of thought to interpret the sunnah, the 5%, only the 5% ambiguous part of the sunnah or the Qur'an. Again, not the rest of the Qur'an, not the theology, not the rest of, just 5% or even sometimes some scholars say even less. The ambiguous, so for example, I'm going to give you an example. When you're standing in prayers... Uh, and uh, you, as uh, again, the sunnah, we put our hands on our chest to follow the sunnah of the Prophet. And it's not you know, mandatory, but we follow the sunnah of the Prophet. Now, it is said that when the Prophet goes into ruku'ah, ruku'ah not sujood, ruku'ah not prostration, when he bends down and says Subhana Rabbil Azim three times, now it is said that when he gets back up, the hadith said he used to put his hand where they were before. Now, the scholars differed. The four imams, they were like, before what exactly? Before the prayer started or before he went down into uh, ruku'ah or when he, before he bent down? Because here's the difference. Before he started praying, his hands are by his sides, not on his chest. If it's before he did the, the bending or before he did ruku'ah, then you put it back into your chest. So again, you put your hand on your chest. Both hands, the right on top of the left. Then you go into ruku'ah and you say, Subhana Rabbil Azim. When you go back up, there are two types of Muslims. People will put, they will still put their hands on their chest again, and then they go into prostration. Or people will put their hands on their sides, and then they go into prostration. That is a difference. And the scholars, the four scholars, uh, uh, four schools of thought, they literally translated it or interpreted it differently. That's it. So that is regarding the four uh, schools of thought when it comes into Sunnah. Now Shia, they also have what they call three different, main different schools of thought. But I believe it's not even schools of thought. They are also divided into sects, three sects within themselves. And the reason why I'm saying sects and not schools of thought is because they have fundamental differences when it comes to theology. The four schools of thought in Sunnah 
we do not differ upon theology. It's all fiqh about doing certain actions. So you have you, please understand the difference. So you have three sects within Shia. The the predominant sect, which is eighty five percent of the Shia of the Shia, is called the Twelvers Shia, Al Ithna Ashri, the Twelvers Shia. They're about eighty five percent of the Shia. The second sect is the Seveners, or another in other words, the Ismailis. The Seveners or the Ismailis. The third and the final sect is the Fivers or the Zaydis. Now the main now the main ones are the ones that we're gonna focus on, which are the Twelvers, but we're gonna talk about the Seveners and the Fivers. So the Seveners or the Ismailis, what's their stories? Why are they different from the rest? Because they disagreed with the rest of the Shia, mainly the Twelvers, regarding the successor of the sixth Imam, Ja'far al-Sadiq. So the sixth Imam, the sixth leader, his name was Ja'far al-Sadiq. They believe that Ismail, his son, the, his older son, was the rightful ruler of the Muslims after Ja'far. So Ja'far is the sixth Imam. They believe the seventh Imam was supposed to be Ismail, his older or eldest son. Instead, it went to his brother, hence the Seveners. Because they believe that the, dif- the main difference here is Imam number seven. So that's why they call themselves the Seveners or the Ismailis because of the name of the ruler who is Ismail, the son of Ja'far al-Sadiq. Now, they believe again that the seventh Imam should have been Ismail. Now, the Twelvers, unlike the Seveners, they believe that the leadership went to Ismail's brother, Musa al-Kadhim. Now, they don't know. It's kind of historical. It's, it's technically a political difference. But to them, it's theological because the imams are part of theology, right? We said that. So it creates a huge difference. To them, it's, again, a theological difference. Even though it's about who ruled what or, what, or who should have ruled or who was the ruler. And there's a difference of opinion and that caused a shift in theology altogether. So that are the seveners, again, the, or the Ismailis. The Fivers technically are like, it's the, the difference is the same. Or they call the Zaydis. They believe that Zayd ibn Ali, the grandson of Hussein, was the fifth Imam. And again, the Twelvers and the Seveners, they have a problem with that. That's why they also went into their own separate sect. So again, you have the Twelvers, the Seveners, and the Fivers. Now, the predominant, like I said, sect uh, is the Twelvers. Now, they're called the Twelvers because they believe in specific 12 Imams. They believe in specific 12 Imams, starting from Imam Ali all the way to the last Imam. And there's a story regarding the 12th Imam that we're going to talk about in, in a second. But again, what I find interesting is that the, the main differences, the main issues are always about who is supposed to rule. Versus who actually ruled and why should have they should they should have they ruled or why didn't they rule or it's all about ruling and power, which is very different because Sunnah we don't we don't put that in account. Whoever ruled ruled. We don't care. You know, whoever ruled ruled. We really do not care. So I find it interesting that even Shia within themselves, they are different sects because of ruling issues because of who. But again, if you think about it, Imams. They are part of the theology, so it is a big deal for them who ruled and who didn't. Now, that brings me to 
the uh, the second biggest now the imama the concept of imam is a big one because it's a theological difference between the sunnah and the shia the second biggest one which is still very big how we view the companions versus how the shia view the companions and this is basically where all the animosity come from this is where all the animosity all the hatred is coming from is their view on the companions because again theological differences you believe in this we believe in this so i mean doesn't make again there's no animosity here you're just different and we pray to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to guide everyone and we thank allah that you know we know for a fact alhamdulillah that we are on a part of truth and i believe they believe the same thing as well but my point is theological differences no problem no hatred here comes the political one which is i want to call the ugly difference which is how they view the companions now let me start with the shia the shia do not have respect for the companions and the reason why is because that they believe that the prophet remember we said we're going to visit that uh, later on they believe that the prophet ﷺ gave the leadership he said that ali ibn abi talib my cousin explicitly he said that he shall be the leader of the muslims that didn't happen we don't have that recorded and that's part of the things that they believe the companions hid throughout history you understand now it makes sense the 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 points that i was not clear on in the beginning of the episode i told you i'm going to explain why that's why now they believe that Ali should have ruled because of a command of the Prophet ﷺ, but we can't find that command anywhere. Because guess what? If the Prophet ﷺ said this in front of the companions or in front of anyone, I promise you no one could have ever disobeyed the Prophet ﷺ and they would have immediately let Ali become the leader. However, they believe that the companions conspired and they skipped Ali on purpose and gave the first leadership to Abu Bakr the second leadership to Umar ibn al-Khattab, and the third leadership to Uthman. Then Ali came. By the way, all this, these issues, Ali became the leader of the Muslims, the fourth caliphate or the fourth khalifa or the fourth leader. He still led the Muslims. It's not like he was never a leader or he was completely skipped. He wasn't skipped. Now they say that the Prophet used to praise Ali a lot. And that was an indication that he wanted Ali to lead. Well, the Prophet ﷺ, by the way, praised every single companion that he knew. Come on. The Prophet ﷺ said about Umar ibn al-Khattab that shaitan is afraid of Umar. Authentic hadith. Explicit. He praised Uthman by saying he the angels are shy from Uthman. Angels are shy from Uthman because he is... Uh, the shyest human being you've ever met and of course Abu Bakr come on the legendary Abu Bakr the best friend of the Prophet the best friend of the Prophet where the Prophet told all the campaign they had a, a debate or an argument that bothered Abu Bakr so the Prophet literally told the companions stay away from my friend he believed in me when none of you believed because he was the first by the way male to believe in the Prophet Abu Bakr the Prophet ﷺ praised all the companions. Come on. Uh, Sa'd ibn Mu'ath, one of the companions, not one of the, the, the early companions, but one of the very elite companions. The Prophet ﷺ said, when Sa'd ibn Mu'ath died, 
after the battle of the trench, the throne of Allah shook out of happiness that it's receiving the soul of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh. Come on. So the Prophet, yes, praised Ali ibn Abi Talib, but equally he praised all the companions. We as Sunnah, we praise Ali like all the other companions. We love Ali ibn Abi Talib so much. But of course, he's not divine or he has no divine connection to God. Again, see, what I love is that we are very disciplined. We don't go to the extreme. The Prophet ﷺ was the final prophet and messenger with the final human being to communicate directly with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's it. We stop at that. We love Ali ibn Abi Talib. We love Al-Hasan. We love Al-Hussein. We love Fatima. We love everyone from the uh, the house of the Prophet ﷺ, Ahlul Bayt, and we love all the companions. So now they have a problem, going back to the, the, the Shia's point of view of the companions, they actually call them disbelievers. Why? Because they say that they, direct, they disobeyed a direct command from the Prophet ﷺ regarding the leadership of Ali, that they skipped and they schemed against Ali. So they are completely disbelievers. Now, the, the notion of companions are disbelievers, they kind of calm down a little bit on that currently. Like they don't say that, they still say that they made mistakes. They were, you know, uh, they, they made a lot of mistakes against Ali and the, the people of the house or the house, the, the family of the Prophet. But there's still some of them call them disbelievers. But uh, that, that kind of that tone, that attitude had lessened over the years. And they're not as severe about it as uh, as before, but again, nonetheless, they uh, call the companions. Uh, the, by the way, the majority of the companions, because they all agreed to let Abu Bakr lead. Now, here's something else. I want to I want to go back to this point. They say that it's an indication, and or, or it was an indication that the Prophet always used to praise Ali, that he wanted him to become the leader. You know, on the deathbed, we talked about this in the episode of the death of the Prophet Go back and listen to it if you missed it. On the deathbed, when the Prophet was about to pray Isha and lead the prayers, he fainted. He went into a mini coma. Then he got back up. Made wudu. Wanted to pray. Then he fainted. So when the Prophet realized he cannot lead the Muslims because he's too weak, he told Aisha, his wife, go and bring me Abu Bakr. And let him lead the prayers Now Aisha was a little concerned Because in her mind she says This is going to cause issues now Drama, why people will start talking And you know mumbling and saying Why Abu Bakr is leading, where is the Prophet So she started actually Saying my my father Because Aisha is the daughter of Abu Bakr So she says my father you know he's soft hearted He cries a lot So just not make him lead Then the Prophet said Bring me Abu Bakr he will lead the prayers. She tried to stall until the even she talked to Hafsa, his second wife or his other wife, and they 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 were trying to convince him to let my Hafsa is the daughter of uh, Umar ibn Khattab. So Hafsa went to the Prophet and said, "Let my father lead." And the Prophet said, "By Allah, Allah and His Messenger want Abu Bakr to lead the salah, the prayers." So if there is any indication, if there is any indication. It is for Abu Bakr to lead the Muslims. He was preparing Abu Bakr to lead the Muslims in prayers, basically leadership in general. So if there was any indication, it is very explicit here. So anyway, 
because of how they view the companions regarding the, this this whole idea of leadership and again it all goes back to who ruled who was supposed to rule which is bizarre for the muslim nation to be divided over who ruled and who didn't is 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 a very strange concept uh for 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 me or for us but anyway uh now they because of that they believe that again most of the hadith can't be accepted because it's by the companions who they believe that they were disbelievers do you understand now any hadith that is narrated by someone from the house of the prophet sallallahu again biological relative they take that hadith otherwise they don't which again causes another issue that means you don't have a lot of hadith regarding how to live your life as a muslim it's just very interesting Anyway, now from now this is how they view the companions. Now, as we know, radiyallahu anhum waradu'an. Allah subhanahu wa taala in the chapter of Al Fatih, verse number eighteen, لَقَدْ رَضِيَ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذْ يُبَايِعُونَكَ تَحْتَ الشَّجَرَةِ Allah saying, I'm basically pleased with all the companions who were uh, at the incident or the peace treaty of Hudaybiyah. We mentioned that recently. So Allah saying, I am pleased with all the Muslims there. That included Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, everybody that you know that the, the Shia are called disbelievers. So now are you saying the Quran is inaccurate? Now some might say, well, this is what they're saying that the companions hid. Maybe later on, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that all, all the companions are disbelievers. And they took that away and they hid it. Again, that poses the issue. If you don't believe in this, and if you believe that Quran is incomplete, that means you don't have a reliable source for your religion. That means you will be in limbo. It's very frustrating, by the way, for you to believe that Quran is incomplete. That's number one. Number two, since when Allah changes his mind like this? Now Allah abrogates certain verses because of certain rulings, because of certain situations. But Allah never praises someone in the Quran, then they say, oh no, 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 turns out they were bad. Because that indicates Allah did not know the future and does not know the future. He cannot see the future. Allah praised the companions in the chapter of Hashr. Look at this. Verse number 8. لِلْفُقَرَاءِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ الَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ وَأَمْوَالِهِمْ يَبْتَغُونَ فَضْلًا مِنَ اللَّهِ وَرِدْوَانًا وَيَنْصُرُونَ اللَّهَ وَالْرَسُولَ أُولَئِكَ هُمُ الصَّادِقُونَ Ya Allah Allah is talking about all the companions who were from the immigrants and muhajirin And Allah is saying they left their homes They emigrated from Mecca to Medina They sacrificed their money their houses, their families, for the sake of Allah, they are the true believers and they are to be trusted. Then Allah praises the, the Ansar, the, the believers of Medina. And those companions are loving those who are emigrating to them. They're welcoming the immigrants from Mecca. And they share with them everything And they have not a single ounce of hatred towards them Isn't that praising the companions in the Quran? It does not make any sense Like honestly Look at the amount of praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given the companions <clears throat> If they were true disbelievers They would have been at least treated like the hypocrites of Medina 
What happened with the hypocrites of Medina? Because they were underneath, they were disbelievers, but they were pretending to be Muslims. So Allah exposed them in the Quran, again, revealing an entire chapter about them. Why didn't Allah do that with the companions if they were truly evil and conspiring and, and, and trying to disobey the Prophet and they were disbelievers? Why wouldn't Allah expose them and only exposes the hypocrites? Doesn't make sense. You know, in the chapter of Tawbah, verse number 100, Allah saying the muhajirin, the immigrants, talking about all the companions that we just mentioned and more, and the Ansar, the 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 the, the companions from Medina, and the followers of the companions. This is key. Those who follow the companions, Look at this. Allah is pleased with them and they are pleased with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look at this now. And Allah prepared for them houses in Jannah in paradise with their own private rivers. Rivers that are running beneath their gardens and their houses. They will live in those houses for eternity And that is the greatest win That is the greatest win So again, none of that makes sense If the companions were truly bad Here's something that's again Historically also contradicts The fact that the companions are Viewed that way by the Shia Ali ibn Abi Talib Prayed behind the companions when they ruled He prayed behind Abu Bakr He prayed behind Umar And he prayed behind Uthman By the way as a Muslim you're not allowed to pray Behind a uh, uh, disbeliever So if Ali thought that they Tricked him and they were disbelievers Ali would have never prayed behind him Yet he used to pray behind him And he used to have a wonderful relationship with them As a matter of fact So much so that he Married his own daughter Ummu Kalthum To Umar ibn al-Khattab You want me to give you one better? He called three of his sons Abu Bakr Umar And Uthman He called three of his sons Abu Bakr, Umar and Uthman Does that sound like someone Who feels like he was betrayed? No No They never thought like that The Muslims chose Abu Bakr first, then they chose Umar, and they chose Uthman, and then they chose Ali. So, again, that's why it's just very interesting. It just doesn't, wallahi, it does not make any sense at all why would someone view the companions when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala numerous times in the Quran have been praising the companions, all of them have been praising them to the furthest extent. They will spend eternity in paradise, Allah is saying. Now I want to go to the final uh, Actually the one before The one before the final difference Which is the prayers Now the Sunnah and the Shia We pray the five daily prayers And we also pray towards the same Qibla Now here are the differences When it comes to uh, 
you know, the, the actual main differences in, in terms of like the prayers, right? We, uh, the, it actually starts from the Adhan. We know the Adhan, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Ashadu Anna La ilaha illallah, Shadu Muhammad Rasulullah, and all these things, right? Now, they say the same Adhan except for they praise Ali in their Adhan. They say, Ashadu Anna Ali Waliyullah. Now, they say that basically I bear witness, this is in their Adhan, I bear witness that Ali is appointed by Allah. Again, this is something that we cannot accept. Ali is a, was a great companion, but he was not appointed by Allah. Now, the second thing is, uh, when we're praying, we put our hands, like we put the right hand on top of the left hand on our chests. Right? So, right on top of the left, on top of the chest. Uh, the, the Shia, they literally put their hands down, like uh, on uh, on the sides. Now, we pray. we both pray five daily prayers. However, we pray it in five different times. Dhuhr is at noon, Asr is in afternoon, Maghrib is by sunset, Isha is by nighttime, and Fajr is at dawn. Here's the interesting part. <clears throat> they still pray five, the five daily prayers, but they combine them. So they combine Dhuhr and Asr together, and they combine Maghrib and Isha. So it becomes instead of praying five different prayers or five in five different periods, they pray in three different periods. And they literally have names for it. They call it the Dhuhrain, and the Maghribain Because they combine Dhuhr and Asr And they combine Maghrib and Isha They uh, We have When we pray When we go into prostration We have eight points Or some people say seven To me it's the same That are touching the floor The head uh, The two hands The two knees And our toes They must be touching the floor During prostration I call it eight Because I believe in the head you have two points in your head The forehead and your nose That must be touching the the floor So I say eight points that are touching the floor Others, they, they say seven Because they say basically the head the, the, the forehead and the nose They consider as one Since you put your head on the floor It's, it's the same thing So again, as, as sunnah We have our forehead, nose Two hands, two knees And our toes touching the floor they, on the other hand, they use some sort of a blank of wood or a heart tablet made out of the clay from Karbla. I'm going to mention the whole uh, Karbla thing or uh, Karbala. Uh, so Karbala is actually a place in Iraq. Just for you to know, they use some sort of, I don't want to say stone, a piece of clay, right, uh, that they put it. So they do not, their foreheads or their face does not immediately or directly touch the floor. They need this and they touch this instead. So we touch the floor if you're in a masjid or if you're at home. You touch the carpet or whatever. You pray normal. They have to put this piece of clay. So they put their face on it instead of their face on the floor. And I'm going to explain to you why this piece of clay, you know, resembles uh, Karbala. Uh, but for now, again, I'm, we'll talk about that right after this. Now, reciting any surah, so it's mandatory to recite a fatiha. We said that during any every salah, every prayer. Anything comes after fatiha is not mandatory, and we could recite one verse, two verses of a surah. We don't have to recite an entire chapter. You can if you want. You don't have to. However, in the Shia prayers, after fatiha, they must recite an entire chapter. 
whether it's long, whether it's short, but it has to be an entire chapter, not one or two verses of a chapter. So that's also a main difference. Now, for us, when we recite Al-Fatiha, you see that the people, that if the Imam says, you see everybody, you hear everybody saying, Ameen. Now, the Ameen is not mandatory. It is Mustahab. It's a very encouraged thing to say, which is basically you say, Amen, right? They, on the other hand, they do not say, uh, Ameen. To them, it invalidates the prayer. They don't believe, now they say, if somebody's making dua to them, they can say, it, but they do not believe that they have to say in prayers. So that is the significant difference. They believe in the Amin when someone makes dua. They say Amin, oh Amen, but they do not believe that you should recite it during the Fatiha, which is again another major difference. So that is the difference regarding prayers, not significant ones, but again they are big difference, uh, nonetheless. Now before I move on to you know the final difference, there is one thing that I, I forgot to mention, which is I hinted at in the beginning, which they believe that the twelfth Imam. Imam number 12, the last Imam, is still alive. Again, that Imam supposedly died, you know, uh, a thousand years ago or so. But they believe that he, you know, was is, is still alive. He went into hiding. Uh, and he's 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 alive somewhere. Again, they that's why I, I you know, in the beginning I said that they they believe that the Imams they have some supernatural powers, right? They could, again, one of them is alive as we speak. He's been alive for more than a thousand years. He's been in, you know, in hiding. And they believe that he will come out towards the end of time. He will come out towards the end of time and he will or shall become Al-Imam Al-Mahdi. He shall be, we all talked about the Imam Al-Mahdi, remember in the transitional sign. So they believe that that the Imam al-Mahdi is the twelfth Imam, and he shall come out, announce himself as al-Imam al-Mahdi, lead all the Muslims, and basically brings out the, the the major signs of the Day of Judgment and the end of the world. Um, so that is yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, many of them they actually believe in that, and again, that is a major difference because we don't we believe that first of all, Imam al-Mahdi is completely now they, they kind of. We know that Imam al-Mahdi will be from the house of the Prophet ﷺ, will be from the progeny of the Prophet ﷺ, a blood relative. Yes, but that's about it. That's the only connection that you know that's there. Now they believe that no, that that twelve Imam, Imam number twelve, is been alive. They believe now. We believe that that Imam al-Mahdi is a normal human being. He didn't live for more than a thousand years, and he's immortal, and you know he's been hiding. And no, no, we don't believe any of that. We have a huge difference. Like again, it's a, one of the major differences because that is part of theology. It's a part of like you know the major signs, or the if you want to call it the minor signs, or the transitional signs of the sign of the day of judgment. This is completely different from the how we perceive Al Imam Al Mahdi. Imam Al Mahdi, yes, will be from the house of the Prophet but he's a normal human being. He will be born. When the time comes for him to be born, he will live a normal life and he will lead the Muslims, but it's not the 12th Imam. There's no one hiding, again, with all the respect to their belief, no one is hiding for you know, over a thousand years uh, somewhere and he will become... Now, some might say this. Well, you believe that the Antichrist is alive. 
He's on an island somewhere. You believe that Ya'ju, the, the people of Ya'juj and Moses, yeah, they're not alive, but they're they're producing and that they exist. Like they die and then the generation after come and then they die and then the but, but you believe that this nation is there out there. Yes, because Allah is allowing them to. Because they shall be released, whether the Antichrist or Ya'juj and Majuj shall be released towards the end of time as the you know two of the major signs of the day of judgment. Same thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is keeping Prophet Isa salam, Jesus Christ alive and he will send him back to earth. So this is Allah's doing. Allah told us this. The Prophet salam, told us this. It is confirmed. Now there's nothing about, first of all, Allah does not, we said that Allah has no divine connection with any of the, what they call imams. Allah does not have any special status for them. Allah could have done this for the Prophet salam, then. Do you guys understand? And if, if Allah will allow someone to live for that long, Allah could have done it for the Prophet And we know that Allah actually offered him that. We know that, by the way. Allah offered the Prophet to live forever and have all the, you know, the dominion on earth and all the kings, you know, kingdoms of earth. But the Prophet rejected that and wanted to, you know, die a normal death and wanted to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But again, there is no text to prove that, nor it's logical because imams are just what we call human beings. They're normal human beings. There's nothing divine about them. There's nothing supernatural about them. So that does not make any sense. Why would he hide? Like, that's another thing. Why would he hide? Why wouldn't Allah, like, normally speaking, would have someone who is born in the future become that Imam al-Mahdi and he will be from the you know the the, the family of the Prophet ﷺ, but then again he will be a normal human being uh, nonetheless now the last difference the last difference which is related to that uh, incident of Karbala we have the day of Ashura I had a whole episode a Q&A episode about it the 10th of Muharram. We as Sunnah, we fast that day because the Prophet ﷺ, one time he was walking and then he found out that the, the Jews of Medina, they used to fast on that day. He asked him why. They said that's because that was the day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that God saved Moses from Pharaoh, from the Pharaoh. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala confirmed that that was indeed the day, the, the, the 10th of Muharram. So the Prophet ﷺ said, we shall fast it. Now, fasting the day of Muharram, the 10th of Muharram, is not mandatory at all. It's optional. But if you fast it, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgives your sins uh, for an entire year's past. An entire one year past. So we call it the Ashura. Ashura literally in Arabic means the 10th Ashura. So uh, we fast on that day, again, to gain uh, you know those rewards. However, they have a celebration on the same day it happens to be on the 10th of Muharram but it's completely different they celebrate or not a celebrate it's a mourning technically it's actually the accurate word is mourning they mourn on the 10th of Muharram because they uh, believe that al Hussein, which is the grandson of the Prophet the son of Ali was assassinated on that day uh, uh, which is called the incident in Karbala, uh, which is called the incident of Karbala. And they uh, mourn that day. They even wear black. And, and they used to hurt themselves, cut themselves. Actually, they used to uh, uh, do something called the tadbir, not takbir, 
Tetbir, T-A-T-B-I-R, Tetbir, which is they used to use blades to cut themselves to express mourning and express express sadness and anger. But this is banned in, in our times now in many countries, so they can't do any, this anymore. But they basically use that time to, again, they get very upset, they get very sad, they wear black. And because, again, if you think about it, Al-Hussein is part of their theology. We are upset that Al-Hussein was assassinated. However, we do not take it that far. We do not believe in, in, in those rituals. And so that is basically it. That is the main difference when it comes to the day of Ashura versus, again, uh, the incident of Karbala. Uh, now, I want to end with this. Like I said, we have differences, obviously. Major ones, theological ones. But at the end of the day, we as Sunnah, because I don't want people to go and say, they're not Muslims. You're not allowed to say that. They are Muslims. The Prophet himself said, Muslims will be divided into 73 sects. He called them Muslims. Now, he said that they all, all the sects will be in hellfire except for one, but you cannot call them non-Muslims. Because that is a notion that I see sometimes people don't want to call them Muslims. They are Muslims. And at the end of the day, they say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. They say the same testimony of faith that we do. So, if you want to go and talk to someone from the Shia that you know, regarding this, these points that we made, the very logical, wallahi logical, wallahi very logical. And I feel very comfortable saying that this is completely logical to be upon the Sunnah. And if you want to go talk to your friends from the Shia or Go talk to them, but show respect. Do not mock them. Do not say, oh, hey, guys, what is this nonsense that you believe in? Because this is the attitude of someone who has no respect for themselves before that. Because if you have no respect for yourself, you don't have respect for others, whether they're from the same religion or not. Even we're not like when you go to someone who is a disbeliever, you should, when you preach Islam to them, you should not mock them. You should be respectful. How about Muslims? Who are on a different They have different beliefs Yes I believe I agree But they are at the end of the day Muslims So be kind to one another And ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala To guide us all to the true And only path to Jannah Thank you Thank you so much for listening And again Alisa I hope that I was able to Explain it and simplify it If you have any questions uh, Please let me know Thank you so much for listening Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh